The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. U.S. President Joe Biden ratcheting up the pressure on China, banning investment in 59 blacklisted tech and defense companies. Meanwhile, tech stocks taking the biggest hit as markets slide and inflation bets pick up, with attention now turning to today's U.S. non-farm payroll report. Russian Energy Minister Alexander Novak tells CNBC in an exclusive interview that Moscow could turn its back on dollar-denominated oil contracts if the United States pursues more sanctions. Ideally, we would prefer not to move away from the dollar, as it is an international currency used for settlements. But if our American partners create this type of situation, we shall have no other choice but to gradually do that. The UK removes Portugal from its COVID travel green list and adds seven nations to the red list, angering the travel and tourism sector. Ayata boss Willie Walsh will be joining us this hour. And billionaire Bill Ackman reportedly closes in on a 10% acquisition of Universal Music Group through his blank check company, valuing it at $40 billion ahead of a planned listing later this year. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, circle back to that headline story then. President Joe Biden has expanded the U.S. investment ban on Chinese companies with alleged military ties. His executive order will come into effect on the 2nd of August. The new blacklist includes 59 companies, including Huawei, and the Treasury Department is set to update that list on a rolling basis. Uh, Let's get out to Sam for more on this story. Increasingly, Sam, as we watch the Biden administration get to work, so many of the policies it's pursuing with regard to China seem to be the ones initiated by President Trump. So not so much of a change, really, in the actions that are being taken. Do we expect any change in the tone of the relationship? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, you're right, because, of course, this morning felt like a bit of deja vu because, of course, former President Trump had already signed a similar executive order last year. But as we know, there are a number of reviews going on at the moment of Trump's China policy. And Biden had actually uh, delayed the implementation uh, of this executive order to allow more time uh, to come up with something stronger here. And so he has now signed this uh, new order, which aims to ban Americans from investing in Chinese firms with alleged ties to the Chinese military, but also now uh, with a link uh, to the surveillance technology industries as well. So there is a list of 59 Chinese companies. Now this will come into effect on August the 2nd and investors will have one year to divest. But uh, what is different, what is new about this is that this order does aim to actually expand the scope of that previous order and further strengthen that uh, to actually address some more threats posed by 
China. So Biden is really casting the net a lot wider now to actually include companies with links to surveillance technology uh, that he says facilitate repression and also uh, human rights abuses. Now, this is a substantial expansion of that Trump era order. And uh, that is because uh, it had been described as being implemented in a slightly careless manner because it left the door open uh, to court challenges because, of course, we did see Xiaomi dropped from the original list because uh, it actually sued the US government. So this is to try and iron out some of those difficulties. And this list of companies is said to actually replace that uh, previous defence blacklist. And actually, a lot of those companies that were on that list have now found themselves on this new list. You've got the likes of Huawei, Hike Vision, which makes surveillance equipment, Sinook, the oil giant, SMIC, uh, which is really seen as a key player in Beijing's tech ambitions and China Mobile. And so really this should come as no surprise to investors who were already looking to offload some of these uh, investments. But as you pointed out, it does signal um, continued pressure under the Biden administration and specifically uh, to prevent this US capital from flowing into to these Chinese companies that they see that have alleged ties to the Chinese military, but also when it comes to human rights abuses. That's not expected to go down very well uh, in China, of course, which denies alleged human rights abuses uh, in places like Xinjiang. And we could likely see China arguing uh, in its defence uh, this report that it's come out with uh, on human rights violations uh, over uh, in the US. But uh, Biden's China policy, of course, we know uh, is still taking shape, but certainly things are becoming a lot clearer. And this certainly builds uh, on uh, Trump's tough stance, and particularly when it comes uh, to this very sensitive subject of human rights, which we know is an area uh, that Biden has really kept the pressure uh, on. In terms of uh, China's response, as I said, uh, China has vowed to safeguard its companies. Uh, Usually the state media wheels are a bit slow to turn in response uh, to some of these announcements, but we have actually seen a Global Times article out today addressing this and criticising it, saying that basically it's going to hurt uh, the US side. But of course, this really does uh, cap off a week, which had been sending some very strong signals uh, about the US and China actually restarting communication. We saw Vice Premier uh, Liu He speaking with the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen this week, and that came after he'd already spoken to the Trade Representative uh, Catherine Tai. Now, in terms of the stock reaction to some of this, we've seen a bit of a mixed picture today. It does appear that some of this risk has already been priced in as we have seen this pressure mounting for some time. And we have, of course, uh, heard from the likes of, uh, you know, China Mobile, for instance, which is on this list, uh, looking to explore options to uh, list in Shanghai. And so certainly uh, what we could see as a result of this is perhaps an acceleration of that trend of a resurgence of Chinese companies heading back home to list in the face of some of this US pressure, guys. Yep. Sam, thank you very much indeed for that. And obviously, I guess for the Global Times and uh, others in China, the timing of this on the verge of uh, or on the edge of the June 4th commemorations will obviously not be lost on them. Nice to see you this morning. 
Thanks for joining us, Karen Markets. Let's take a broader look at those Asian markets then as we digest the news flow around some of these tensions still with the U.S. administration and Chinese names. You can see the Chinese market trades up by about a tenth of a percent, weaker tone on the Hong Kong market down a quarter of one percent. But Apache oil traders, you can see with these major markets all going in different directions. Japan trades weaker, Australia trades higher. So there's a little bit of caution around for this Friday session as anticipated. Don't forget we're setting up for the U.S. jobs report later on today. Let's just take a look at those markets. It feels like it's been a tentative trade all week. And if you look at uh, the course of the week-to-date numbers, a tenth of a percent up for the Dow, about uh, a third of a percent down for the S&P, and also weaker for the Nasdaq in particular by about one percent so far as you add in to the losses from yesterday. And this is telling us that the market is concerned that there could be a very strong jobs report that may trigger talk of tapering sooner rather than later, which could be negative for the technology names. That's the thinking out there. Same time, we're still seeing a little bit of recovery play over various trading sessions this week in the Dow. So investors very much just pulling back to the sidelines yesterday ahead of the report. Uh, the most negative for the markets uh, for the Dow was Boeing. Don't forget this has been an instrumental stock in the recovery phase. When it comes to the, the S&P and the Nasdaq, Apple and Tesla had the most negative impact. And two important stocks here, Apple one that's just not been able to catch a bid all this year and investors are stressing about why it's not delivering the returns that it has in the past, whether it's a pull forward of all that demand activity and the valuation is still too stretched or whether it's these overarching factors around what's going to happen with interest rates that could be depressing the stock price at this stage. And of course, Tesla, one of the high flying names that's worked on momentum when we talk about a low interest rate environment. It's also one that we've been watching very, very closely as a result. I want to take you to AMC. Meme stocks very much in focus this week, in particular this name. We saw the stock tanking about 25% in the morning session before recovering a little bit, then of course uh, reversing. So 17% down is uh, the trade at this point. And uh, all this is the company uh, went back to the market uh, with a raising uh, this time to sell more than 11 million shares. You may recall early in the week when it placed shares with a hedge fund, the stock actually went up as investors... Uh, parked any fears around the dilution effect and just went after the fact that they're trying to lean against the hedge funds plus the promise of free popcorn and uh, exclusive movie screenings that uh, carried sway with the retail crowd instead. This time round, the company is very, very clear about the implications. In its filing, it said our market prices reflect market and trading dynamics unrelated to our underlying business. Also, when going on to warn about investing in this particular stock in its Class A shares. So the warning labels were slapped on the product by the company itself yesterday, and you can see it was down. But uh, that said, the stock price has been up uh, about 2,800% so far this year, or 2,321 uh, by the close yesterday. The dollar. Let's take a look. Uh, this is what we've got. Uh, yields are much tied a little bit, and the dollar has been staging a little bit of recovery in the lead up to the payrolls report. That's knocked sterling and euro off their perch. And you can see there's a decent reversal from the 142 levels we've had on sterling. We're back below the 141 mark, and you can see 121 on euro dollars. We've given up 122. A stable versus the Japanese yen at this point and versus the yuan, 6.4, the level we are watching today. So big risk event is what we're setting up for. Ah, well, let's see. Let's talk about the jobs. Uh, U.S. initial jobless claims fell to 385,000 last week. That was the lowest since March 2020. 
It was uh, below the estimates. Uh, more than 15 million Americans are still receiving benefits, about half the total seen this time last year. But the fact that it dropped below 400,000 was seized upon really as a very positive sign about the nature of the recovery, given that some of the jobs data we've had in recent months has actually disappointed and missed expectations by a wide mark. So what about today's big data point? Well, the U.S. is expected to have added 650,000 jobs in May. This is the Reuters expectation following a surprise labor market slowdown in the previous month. Unemployment is seen at 5.9%, while average hourly earnings growth is predicted to edge down to 0.2%. And that's one of the challenges, of course, as we continue to talk about this series of data, Karen, we are trying to focus on what the implications are for higher wages around this whole story of inflation, because traditional economics would tell you that you don't focus on the headline, you focus on the core. The core is more stubborn for central banks to deal with. And the core reflects salary increases, wage increases, as, a, as, as uh, workers and consumers demand higher compensation for what they see as rising prices in the economy. But if ultimately what we're talking about today is a decline in wages, that doesn't really support the bigger argument around sustainable inflation growth. Yeah, I, I think this is a big report card. Uh, the market wants to see whether we've got another disappointing month, monthly number. We had that last time round and everybody was sitting back thinking that the expectations were strong and the number would certainly match up to those consensus levels. It didn't, which uh, hopefully uh, for some did not reinforce the view that the market was heading towards an inflation story. As a result, you saw yields settle down. But what happens to those yields if we get the very opposite now? And the whisper numbers are actually, in fact, higher than the forecast number of the 650-odd thousand jobs that could be created in the month. It's a number of well above 700,000 at this point. So if you do see a hot number cross, that may put some life back into that U.S. 10-year Treasury yield, but also bring forward expectations that a taper talk might be on the cards even this month at the next Fed meeting. I mean, expectations are shaping up that it could be an August conversation under uh, the cover of, uh, you know, the lull that happens over summer when people flee to different parts of the world, uh, typically to, to go and have a holiday or at least stay at home this year. But uh, whether the conversation now changes and it's a June story or, or just the opposite, what if we get a, a reinforcement of a month early and the number well and truly misses? Mm. Do we start kicking out taper talk well into late this year, even into next year? So for me, the, the timeline is so wide on what this number could do for the markets. I feel like uh, Commissioner Dreyfus uh, <laughs> from the Pink Panther movies. Do you remember? Uh, he, he became increasingly exasperated and developed this eye twitch. It was because too much caffeine, wasn't it? I think he was just completely flummoxed by what Peter Sellers, or Pink Panther as he was, was doing at the time. But Inspector Clouseau, uh, I should say. But uh, this is how I feel about what the markets do off the back of the number. Because I'm sat here and you were just running through what the consequences would be of a strong number, so what the consequences <laughs> would be of a weak number. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking... If I were trading on the back of this number or trying to trade on the back of this number today, what would I actually want? Would I want a strong number or would I want a weak number? And that's the problem. Again, 
for investors as they sit here and look at the closing trade for the week. We've come into this with markets deliciously poised. We had a couple of good sessions earlier on in the week. We had a really ropey session yesterday in reality at at the headline level. And so you're kind of set up for what is supposed to be a really good number. And yet we know that there's some underlying problems here in that the um, participation rate has not really been picking up as it should be, given the pickup in employment growth, because people have taken themselves voluntarily out of the workforce. One, because they're still worried about the transmission of the virus, and two, because they are um, benefiting from some of the government's um, subsidies at the moment and supports. And they won't wash out until September in some states here. So what's my incentive to go back to um, a low-earning wage job while I'm getting some sustenance from the government at this stage? And then when I look at the non-farm, sorry, the small businesses index, the NFIB number that we saw yesterday, record high number of US small businesses can't fill job openings. So they're struggling here. But again, coming back to my Inspector Dreyfus reference, do I want a strong number or do I want a weak number, given what that signals about the Fed's announcement? Yeah, just on that point about the the positioning, you've got market uh, traders trying to cover some of the shorts on the US dollar just in case. You can see the caution around technology names in case we're talking about a taper sooner rather than later. Where does it leave some of these big tech names uh, and could they be sold off again? But the timing you point out around September is incredibly important. Uh, We've got uh, kids also... uh, going back to school round about then and what happens for those that have taken on a bigger role in childcare. That seems to be one of the, the big swing factors too for the participation rate, whether you change the, the childcare dynamics at home and that is a, an encouraging factor. But you know, if we have to wait it out till September, it still means that the numbers we get on a monthly basis leading up till September will give us a sense of the trend, how quickly those jobs are coming back and whether there is inflation pressure. You just put the September numbers on top of it. That said, we're in a waiting game all through 2021 if we're waiting out till September, aren't we? I mean, those numbers are going to come through much later. Yeah, and we are anyway, aren't we, on the inflation story. Is it transitory? Is it not transitory? Is the Fed right? Or are those on the other side of the ledger calling it? We're going to park that conversation there and just talk about food prices and give you a close-up on one metric. Global food prices have posted their biggest jump in a decade. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization's monthly index soared 40% last month. Nestle and Coca-Cola have signalled they will pass the mounting cost of raw materials onto consumers amid warnings from the British Retail Consortium that there could be price hikes later this year. Still to come on the programme this morning, oh, what a treat we've got for you from St. Petersburg. The Russia's Deputy Prime Minister telling CNBC the Kremlin may make further moves away from the US dollar. This is, we got a big announcement yesterday, actually, about the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, running down its dollar positions. But we will get out to Hadley. We'll catch up on that story in just a moment. And for more on President Biden's executive order targeting Chinese companies, you can check out Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. 
Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, has told CNBC OPEC has to shroud its moves in secrecy. It comes after OPEC and its allies agreed to gradually increase output earlier this week. Hadley spoke to the energy minister at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum and asked for his take on the greatest threat to price stability. I don't believe that there is a threat to, to the market stability. I don't talk about prices, you know. When you think about with this with regards to the IEA report, you said it was from La La Land. How do you describe sequel, that? Sequel, sequel. The sequel to La La Land. Yes. Walk us through that. Do you think that that gives OPEC and Saudi Arabia more clout in Washington? It's not, it's not a realistic scenario. That's why, you know, it's a good, it's good fun to think about it. But it's when it comes to applying it in reality, I don't think it's, it's going to be... So these uh, investors and governments are out of touch with reality? No, I'm suggesting, I'm suggesting whoever put that scenario is in, not in touch with reality. In terms of production, when are we going to see Saudi Arabia begin to produce more oil in line with what you've we suggested? We are going to be doing it in July. And as of now, how many barrels are we talking Well, in accordance to what we've agreed yesterday, we will go back to the 9.4 something for 450 or something like this and in terms of what happens next with regards to your partners and OPEC plus uh, that's a good you know we have to shroud our moves and acts in, in a great deal of mystery a veil of secrecy absolutely I have to promise mm. the whole world the whole market the whole industry that I'll key, I shall try with my the support of my co-chair Mr. Novak and everybody in OPEC plus we need to make sure that speculators are not on their toes, but on their nails. Meanwhile, Russia's deputy prime minister has told CNBC that Moscow may be tempted to stop using the US dollar-nominated crude contracts if the White House continues to hit the country with sanctions. Alexander Novak made the comment shortly after Russia's National Wealth Fund announced it will completely remove any US dollar assets from its investments. And let's get out to Hadley Moore from St. Petersburg. Hadley, you've had a, a busy day gathering some sound for us, and I want to get to these comments. Do you think this is just positioning ahead of the, the Putin-Biden summit? Is that how we read some of this comment, uh, commentary coming through? No doubt about it, Karen. It is positioning. But at the same time, you've got to wonder if these policymakers in Washington are rethinking the calculus on this one, because we've had sanctions on Russia in various capacities since 2014. As you know, lots of questions about whether this kind of soft diplomacy is actually really that affected given the fact of uh, Russia's current uh, economic growth outlook, basically what we've heard from the central bank governor as well as the World Bank is that they're projecting GDP growth in Russia for 2021 to be between 3 and 4%. Um, the World Bank's figure around 3.2%, I believe. But at the end of the day, for those folks sitting in Washington and preparing for this mega summit between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin in just two weeks from now, you've got to wonder what's still left in that toolbox. Um, Lots of questions about that. I've been asking, as you say, uh, many of the folks here on the sidelines of this forum. I also asked this of the first deputy prime minister yesterday on a panel. We did the opening plenary with him. And he essentially said, you know, we are looking eastward. This has uh, created new trends in the way we do business, whether it be in terms of making sure that we have those gold stockpiles at a certain level, but also in terms of the de-dollarization. And it's not something um, that they're going to shy away from. And he also pointed out to me that while you've got a huge Chinese delegation and a big 
Middle East Qatari delegation. You've also got the second largest delegation here at this forum from the United States. They're just not doing any television. But listen in to what Alexander Novak had to tell me when I asked him, essentially, you know, given what we're seeing from the central bank, given what we're seeing from your oil wealth fund in terms of the de-dollarization, is there a point when oil contracts will be denominated in something other than U.S. dollars? Listen in. Ideally, we would prefer not to move away from the dollar, as it is an international currency used for settlements. But if our American partners create this type of situation, we shall have no other choice but to gradually do that. Speaking of our energy policy, we shall continue to be world leader in the fossil fuel market, and we shall diversify by going into the LNG and petrochemicals. Plus, develop new energy production of clean energy and the renewables, small-scale nuclear, closed-cycle technologies, producing new types of environmentally friendly fuel for nuclear reactors, for which there will be demand in the world markets. We think that despite the likely diminishing future share of hydrocarbons in the global energy balance based on existing trends, we shall remain competitive. We shall be competitive regarding our margins, our production costs, the developed transport infrastructure. So even within a shrinking global market, our share shall remain high. As for gas, everyone agrees that it's the energy source of the transition period. So we plan to keep using this highly environmentally friendly energy source, but also to diversify. Apart from our pipeline gas, we shall develop LNG production. America's Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm has suggested that Russian gas is dirty. Do you reject that? I've already spoken about this. I think you can find the answer to your question in the publicly available reports, international analytical reports. So to reiterate, our gas that we pump into Europe through the Nord Stream system is one quarter of the LNG carbon footprint, the LNG coming from US shale production. There are many factors implicating that, including production technologies, processing and transportation technologies. One thing that I have not mentioned yet, the Nord Stream is an infrastructure built using cutting-edge technologies best in class environmentally, with minimal losses and with the possibility of using the latest pipeline and gas transportation technologies. This in itself is a significant environmental advantage, one of many. If we put aside production and transportation, we can jokingly say that the natural gas formula is exactly the same in Russia and in the US, or in Africa for that matter. So it's politics? Most likely it is. I think it's climate change hype. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.